At this time, I'd like to have um, Frank Schuster come up and share uh, an experience that a group of us had this past week. It was just so remarkable, and I asked uh, Frank if he would share it with you this morning. So kind of gets at much of what we've been talking about uh, in terms of the life and purpose of our church. So, Frank? Good morning. Good morning. So as uh, Pastor said, we had an experience this past week. A little background, we, on Tuesday mornings, there's a group of us that uh, meet for breakfast. And uh, we've been meeting now for at least a couple years or a little longer maybe. Rocky was the one that kind of spearheaded uh, the, the forming of the group. And uh, typically there's anywhere from six to eight of us that get together and and uh, currently we we've been meeting for quite a while now at Shoe Shoes restaurant in Freedom I mean New Brighton I'm sorry and and we have uh, no real set agenda uh, we go there uh, whatever's on people's minds we speak about we talk with each other uh, sometimes we're led to pray we've prayed for people here in our congregation that we know need prayers uh, we've prayed for, you know, each other, and, and uh, we do have a chance to share things, bounce ideas off. Uh, not, not a whole lot about world politics, more about, you know, our, our church family. And, and uh, one of the things that pastors talked about a bunch of times is how we need to, you know, be a church outside the church. And, and this has really started to become our church outside of you know our regular Sunday worship here and uh, this past Tuesday we were blessed to be able to uh, pray for an individual uh, the woman that owns the restaurant came to us when we were first together that morning and she she let us know that one of the fellows that we see on a regular basis in the restaurant was uh, he had just found out that he has liver cancer and it's very far progressed and, and he's suddenly gotten very ill. His lungs were starting to fill with fluid and, and it was uh, uh, just a really traumatic thing for, for him and, and uh, Sue's very close with him and she asked us to pray for him. And so, you know, Pastor let her know that we would definitely pray for, for him and that, you know, uh, he was offered his services to meet with him and pray with him if, if he so desired and so forth. But uh, we then went on to, we, we prayed and uh, Pastor led us in a really, uh, really very nice prayer and we uh, held him up before the Lord. And then uh, Sue after, afterwards went and called him at home, and, and he said, she told him that we were there and that we would like to pray with him. And, and so he told Sue that he was going to get himself together and he was going to come to the restaurant. And uh, a little while later, he came, he came in. His name is Mike. And, and he came right back to our table. And, and, and I have to tell you that... As time has gone on, the, there's a lot of regulars that come into the restaurant, and the eyes are on us. I mean, they they understand what we're doing, why we're there, and they see us pray multiple times, and, and I think it's really uplifting to a lot of those people. 
And uh, so when Mike came into the restaurant, he came and he sat at our table and, and then we just prayed. We, you know, we, we embraced him, we prayed for him, we lifted him up to the Lord. And it was, it was a really emotional time for, for all of us, including Mike. And he said that you know, he's, he really appreciated it. Uh, he, feel, he feels like he's fulfilled his duties in life. And he's raised his children, and uh, he's, he's ready to move on with life's work. But uh, it was just so wonderful, and what a blessing it was for us to be able to hold him up and pray with him. And then after, after it was done, he went on and sat at the counter like he always does and had his breakfast. But there were, you know, there were many, several of the customers came and commented on, on uh, how how great it is that we would do that in public for, for a person like that. But it was just, to, to me, it, it was, the blessing was, was ours to be able to do that. And, and it was so nice to be able to share that. So uh, anything else that I might have missed along the way? But. It's great. Thank it you. Awesome to see, uh, see Frank put this uh, big bulky arm around this guy and his big old ham, or, uh, and just hold him like this and pray for him. A guy he never met. We never met before, did we? No. He sat there in the middle of us, and Frank just put his arm around him, and that guy had to feel loved and cared for because he was. And so, so, so Frank took the initiative, but all of us just really, uh, just really uh, let him know that uh, didn't matter that we didn't know him. It only mattered that we cared. And so uh, it really made, I think, a difference for him. So thank you, Frank, very much for sharing. And I got to say this, too. Uh, Since we, the longer we've been there, this is true, people from the kitchen, if they're on a break, they just kind of wander out. And they'll stand close by and just listen to our conversation or try to get our attention to say hello or to be recognized in some way. So there are several other guys that do the same thing. And Sue listens to our podcast every Sunday morning. Well, no, she can't Sunday morning, but she listens to our podcast. Um, and so she's here, but she's not here. And uh, so this church is making an impact on people's lives in ways that we can't always see. Amen. So we're very thankful. So thank you, Frank. You know, to, to, that, to that point... The one fellow that works there for her, his name is Rick, and he comes in and makes a point of saying hello to us all the time. But on Tuesday, when we were, I, I think we kind of interrupted things with the praying, and he didn't get a chance to say his hellos. But we were all finished, and I needed to get back to the shop to open up shop. And uh, I walked out the door, and Rick came running out the door, and he said, "Hey, hold up a second. And he wanted to shake my hand. He says, "You're not getting out of here that easy." And yeah. so. He, he made a point to come out to say good morning and shake my hand. So it was, that's just, it's just become a, a really great thing. So, thanks. Yesterday, Philip went to pick Rick up and took him out to the day to a barbecue. Oh, really? Oh, that was wonderful. Yeah, great. Yeah, so that's one thing. i tell you, Phil Locker, Bonnie and Rocky's son, meets with us. So he's in his, he's 35, the rest of us are, you know, we have one foot in the grave, the other on the banana peel. But um, so, yeah, he brings the energy. But Phil, I mean, he's often described himself as he says, "I'm my mother with a beard," because he's just, he's just so 
welcoming and so loving. And we have another guy that comes here, his name is Scotty, who's blind. Um, not a person that you would typically want to pay attention to. Uh, he comes with his wife almost every time that we're there. Frank And Phil gets up out of his, his chair. He goes over and he gives Scotty a hug. And is very affectionate and loving towards him. Uh, as well as some others. So, you know, Phil's like the bird dog, man. He just gets out there and he gets to, to loving people. Um, but it's a holy moment in a secular place. And so it, when we were talking about it, it illustrates, I think, how the church needs to move forward. Because none of those people are too interested in coming here yet. But it's interesting how interested they become when they see believers get together. Nothing is contrived. It's as authentic as it can be. And there's a kind of, and I'm going to be talking about this today, but there's a kind of peace that's there with our group. And you can see that many of those people want to feed on that peace something that they don't have or have as much as they would like. So anyway, that's, uh, that's, that's uh, Frank and Rocky and um, Barry, and Barry and Jim and who else? My, and Phil. Jim Niehanke when, Jim he's, not, when, he's, when not he's not making movies. Yeah, when he's not making movies. Yeah. We know when he's making movies. Kurt, he's, he Curtis, wears cool sunglasses. Kurt, Curtis has been there with us. But Curtis has been there some with us, but... Uh, yeah, so that's Gene, who we are. Gene met with us for a while. Yeah, I mean, yep. anybody's invited. You're 7 o'clock, we, yeah. we get together. So if you feel like uh, it's early in the morning and you want to have breakfast, come on over. We're, we'd be glad to have you. Sue's always w willing to let us move tables together. So. Yeah. Don't forget the new guy, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. So, All right, brother. Well, thank you, thank brother. You. Thank you very much. <coughs> That is true. I think that, you know, of a lot of the biblical virtues that ought to be a part of every Christian's life, like love and trust and faith, hope, truth, goodness, perhaps among the most elusive of those would be joy and peace. Because you, you have the, you're surrounded by a world that's always telling you how urgent everything is. And there's this confusion between, this is conflation between what is urgent and what is important. And those two are not the same. But we believers who live according to what is important find peace a lot easier than we believers who live according to what is urgent. What the world tells us is urgent. And being able to tease out those, that distinction, I think, is one of the pathways uh, to a fulfilled Christian life and to a life that is appealing to other people who are around us. There's something to be said, and. Uh, there's something to be said for that believer or those believers 
who remain nonplussed when it looks like the world is just breaking down around them or there's some kind of tragedy or whatever that's hit them and, and their faith remains unshakable. It's not that they're in denial. They see everything for what it is. Maybe their health is bad, but they still trust, they still believe, they still have faith, and there is this peace. And people will often say to those kinds of people, man, I just wish I had your faith. I wish I had your assurance. I wish I had those things that you have, because I know that if I were in your circumstances, I could not handle it the way that you are. So I think uh, one of the ways in which we impact the world around us is to convey to them a sense of peace. So a peace that we have between us and God, peace within ourselves, a peace that we have with people. You know, there are a lot of people in all of our lives, are there not, who are just uh, predisposed to be contritious, <laughs> predisposed to being like uh, they just have problems with people all the time and they aren't pleasant to be around. But when you're a person who is about peace, where peace is evident in your life, you are a harbor to those people. You are a safe place. And they want to know what it is about your life that gives you the ability to be that way. So, and it all begins for the believer in terms of our relationship with Christ. Now, when we talk about the nativity story, I sat down one day and I thought, you know, I, I wonder what like are the really kind of important words, the big words as they are related to the nativity story. And it seems to me, and some other people would come up maybe with different words than I would, but they were joy and peace, Emmanuel, the word gospel, which is used for the first time in Matthew chapter, or Luke chapter 2. Uh, there is this idea of worship, or, you know, so that every time they had this encounter with the angels or whomever, there was this worship. When the shepherds met Jesus, there was this sense of worship. Worship seems to be a big word associated with the nativity event. So joy, peace, Emmanuel, God with us, this, this whole idea, what a radical idea that a God would want to become human in order to save them from themselves. It doesn't sound as radical today as it was back then. Because gods back then were capricious, self-serving, didn't really care about humans very much. Um, and so uh, the idea of, the, of God being Emmanuel, God with us, was just a crazy idea back then. So of these five big words, many of them occur in Luke 2, verses 8 through 14. So if you want to open up your Bibles and turn to that, I'll be reading from the ESV. Uh, you'll find with the KJV or maybe some others that there's a, a bit of a different rendering, largely the same meaning, but I use the ESV. 
And so we read here, Luke records, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. That word good news appears for the first time in the New Testament right here. It's the word, and I, it's difficult to pronounce, uh, so I won't pronounce it. I don't want to murder that word here, but um, it's the word that we get evangelical from. It's a Greek word that we get evangel or evangelical from. So I bring you good news of great joy. It's fascinating, isn't it? That the good news of Jesus Christ coming to earth 2,000 years ago as a human being so that he could be uh, the substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf is not good news to most people in the world and is forgotten as good news for many believers. So there, 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 there's this massive amount of angels who appear before these shepherds and are saying this is good news that should give to you great joy. That will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, the Greek word for that is soter, so there are two meanings, to save from danger. It means to save from danger, and soter is to improve, to make better, to rescue from something. So for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ. He is the anointed one. So the term anointed one doesn't mean a whole lot to us because it's not a practice that we have in our culture, but it was a big, big deal in that day. And it set you apart for a special purpose. You were unique. You were particular in a very good way if you were anointed. Who is the Christ? The Lord, curious, which you could reduce down to supreme Lord, leader, supreme ruler. So it's interesting that in this text, you have all these like really big words. So, um, Savior, Christ, Lord, huge words, particularly in that day, in one verse, to underscore the importance of this birth for all of mankind. So verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God. Now, so that this is the thesis statement here. This is, this is the, this is, so they appear and they're saying, this is the reason why we are appearing this is the reason why you should be filled with joy and hope. This statement here in verse 14. 
Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. Glory to God in the highest. So because of what God is doing, he who is in the highest of heavens, glory to him and on earth, peace. So what is implied there? That there is no peace. There was no peace between God and humanity. There is hostility. So when we look at this word, on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests, in the English word, peace, when we think of the word peace in our English language, we tend to think of a cessation of hostilities between two or more adversarial groups. That's what we think when we think of the word peace. There are other lesser uses for the word peace, but typically when we talk about peace in our language, that's what it means. Some of the lesser applications of the word peace would be like peace of mind, peace of heart. Um, and that's an important application of peace as well. <laughs> we are surrounded by millions of people. So, uh, wait, let's see if I can remember it. Most men who, who live lives live, what is it? Most men who live lives live their lives out of desperation. What is that? That's quiet desperation. Most men who live their lives live their lives in quiet desperation. I think that was Henry David Thoreau. Look it up for me, Ruth, if you would. Is it Henry David Thoreau? Most men who live their lives live their lives in quiet desperation. That's to say, the person that you meet at Walmart taking your, punching out your order on their cash register is living their life in quiet desperation. Well, yeah, they do have self-service now. So when you're running up your bill, you feel quiet desperation as well. <laughs> or when you can't figure it out, there's a lot of quiet desperation. Maybe not so quiet. So, but Ada works down at the ladle. And we, sir, we, we, we work down there too many times a year. That is a room full of people living, if not in quiet desperation, open desperation. Sure. Most men live their lives in quiet desperation and go to their graves with their souls still in them. Oh, yeah. That's right. I forgot about that second part. Most men live their lives in quiet desperation and go to their graves with their song still in them. Yeah, there's a lot that Henry David Thoreau said that I don't agree with, but I do agree with that one. And so, um, and so when you leave this church today, you will encounter people that desperation is a regular part of how they live their lives regarding their family, regarding their finances, regarding their health, regarding their future. 
And the only way they know how to fix it um, is in ways that probably you and I would not fix it. They don't understand. They don't see. It has not been exemplified for them how the God of the universe can bring peace to your heart and soul. So the good news doesn't sound like the good news anymore because people don't fundamentally believe that we can be at peace with God and at peace with ourselves as well as other things. The reason why the good news doesn't sound like the good news anymore is because we now believe we only need to receive peace from God, but not peace with God. And it all begins there. <laughs> so in a world that's marked with entitlements, where we think other people owe us for doing not much or nothing, we believe that many people believe that God owes them. So they're glad to receive whatever healing peace God wants to bring to their heart, but they're not so ready to believe that they need to have peace with God. Those two are two entirely different things. I mean, peace from God is a cure. Peace with God is called repentance. And those two things are not the same. So the results of sin when we have no peace are, we have no peace with God, we have no peace with fellow man, we have no peace with the created order in which we live, we have no peace within ourselves, we oftentimes don't have peace in our marriage, our family, our work, with, uh, with the created order like Shalom or Eden. There's alienation, there's fragmentation, there's estrangement, there's conflictedness, there's disunity, there's, uh, we, we work by the sweat of our brow, we feel exiled from people and places. That's what peace does to us. Or the lack of peace, that's what it does to us. Now when we look at peace in the Old Testament, there's this very powerful word for which there really is no English equivalent. We don't have an English word that captures the fullness of this, this word in the Old Testament that many of you know as the word shalom. So the word shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruit, fruitfully employed. Under, all under the arch of God's love. Shalom, in other words, is the way things are supposed to be. And when things are returned to the way they're supposed to be, you experience shalom. Now, many of you know, for example, that we had a bit of a flood in our house this past summer, and as of a couple weeks ago, everything that was disrupted by that has been restored, put back the way it was supposed to be. 
One of those things is like a fourth bedroom that we have in our basement that I use to uh, do my podcast from. Uh, we use it um, for people to stay in, but I have a desk and all of my like important uh, books for study and things like that are in there. It's very comfortable. <coughs> it's uh, it's it's kind of isolated. It's warm. It's inviting. And so Ruth asked me this morning, she said, are you glad to have your room back? And I said, you have no idea. And every time I go into that room to prepare, I experience peace because everything is put back the way it was supposed to be. Now, (coughs) excuse me, that's just one example. When things in our lives become disrupted, whether it's a relationship or our work, or our health, when it's put back together as it should be, what is your emotional feeling? It's peace. So when God's work, when, his, when, when we experience shalom, then the whole of everything is put back as it should be. And when that happens, there's no alienation. There isn't any conflict Uh, There's no disunity. All of those things are pushed out and away, and we experience peace. So shalom is a very, very powerful word, and probably it almost, I mean, it almost demands that when we talk about the peace of God, we should be talking about the shalom of God because too much is lost just in the English word peace. Now, in the New Testament, there is this word called irene. It is the Greek word that the apostles used for the word peace. They, they weren't writing in Hebrew because their audiences uh, were not Hebrews. They were um, people who lived within a largely Hellenistic culture or a Greek culture, and they all, almost all spoke Greek. So Paul would write, and the apostles would write in, in Greek. So the closest approximation to the word shalom that they found in the word Greek was the Greek word irene. Literally, irene means, particularly in a civil sense, the opposite of war and dissension. Among individuals, harmony. Metaphorically, peace of mind, tranquility, and harmony. So irene kind of implies, it can allude to shalom, and it's the best word that, that but given the fact that the Apostle Paul would use the word irene, you could deduce from that that what he was really getting at was this idea of shalom as he was writing uh, in, uh, in whatever text he was writing. Excuse me, I'm sorry. <coughs> so Irenae can allude to the atonementary restoration just like shalom does. That's how powerful the word shalom is. Shalom is so powerful in Irene, by, by, uh, by implication, are so powerful in terms of how they're used, it alludes to this very powerful theory we call the atonement theory. Like, what has to happen for everything to be fixed? Everything needs to be restored as it should have been in the first place. Some of the other restoration uh, atonement theories are justification, redemption, uh, those would be two others. Uh, reconciliation would be another. Restoration, in my mind, restoration is the most important of those particular, of those four words, because it includes all. 
All of the restoration is only possible because we are reconciled. Restoration is only possible because we are justified. Restoration is only possible because um, we are reconciled. It is only possible because of those three things. So in my mind, it just, it helps. And in making that connection to shalom, I think, can be helpful. So what is the intended use of the word peace in this context? Um, and so we, we see here, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, here's an interesting thing. You can learn some things. You can learn some things when you compare different texts, like the NIV, the ESV, the KJV, and, and things like that. When we read in this ESV, it says, glory to God in the highest and, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So it's exclusive. Who gets the peace? Those people with whom God is pleased. That's who gets the peace. That's who gets to participate in peace in a holistic shalom kind of way. It's those people. When you read in the NIV, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Again, it's exclusive. Who gets God's peace? Um, those on whom his favor rests. When you read the New American Standard Bible, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased, it is also exclusive. The only people who get God's peace are those with whom he's pleased. How many of you have a KJV? Yeah. Growing up, we always heard the term uh, men of goodwill. Yeah. Is that the same thing as this? KJV right here. Exactly. You're making my point for me, Barry. You're way ahead of me. Good job. So, so in the KJV, which is what you hear almost all the time, so if you hear it in, in songs and, and if when you were growing up years ago, most of us had a King James Version. This is what the King James Version, per Barry's comment. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward, implied here, all men. It's inclusive. Everybody gets God's peace in some fashion or another. I don't think that that's necessarily a universalist statement. I think the statement here is that, that God's work is going to be so poignant and so powerful that through the kingdom expression, there will be people throughout the world who, even though they don't know God personally, there will be a benefit that could come to them in the way of peace because of how Christians live their lives. Does this make sense to everybody? Do you see the difference here? Well, I'll show it to you. So the, here's a translation comparison of peace. ESV, among those whom he is pleased. NIV, those on whom his favor rests. NASB, among those whom he is pleased. But note, KJV, on earth, peace, goodwill toward all men, Implied. Now, why? Yeah, yeah. I think I, I've heard the distinction uh, peace among all men of goodwill. Yeah. Yeah, which isn't people that, it's offered to everyone. Yeah, 
I, I don't know what translation that would be. Maybe I should have looked further. That might be kind of a, a bit of a derivative from the Latin, too, uh, which also would have come out of the Roman Catholic Church uh, or whatnot. But I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a good distinction. But here's a reason why some people think the KJV has been interpreted this way. So if you read in Luke 2.10, four, four verses before verse 14, it says, Good news for all the people. And that, that, and that when they interpreted 2.14, they, they said, well, look, 2.10 seems to point to 2.14 as well, where it says, peace and goodwill to all men. So that's kind of like the explanation. Just bringing it up because you, you might see those differences and wonder why those differences are there. But on the other hand, regarding peace, um, uh, it might be, others might say, the good news is offered to all of mankind, but peace with God is offered to only those with whom he is pleased. So those are some of the interesting, I think, discussions that take place uh, among exegetes uh, when they translate the texts. But let's talk a, f a few minutes about practical application regarding peace. But I do want to say this. I'm not sure that either one is necessarily absolutely right. I do believe, I do believe that the world benefits when Christians live their lives righteously and out of the quality of our lives, other people's lives improve and they can experience peace as a result of that. But I also know there is no peace unless we are reconciled to God. And I'll demonstrate that in a few minutes with you. So understand then that spiritual peace may be equated with salvation. Its absence may be equated with disobedience and even judgment because of man's rebellion. So if we, are, if we don't have a sense of peace in our lives, it may be because we are in a particular rebellious state before God on something or as a regular practice. But if we do experience peace in our lives, the more peace we have, probably the closer we are in our relationship with Christ. The greater our connection to Christ, the more peace is afforded to us. I think that's true as well. So you've heard this little uh, kind of like uh, trite statement. No God, no peace. No God, no peace. And there are probably any number of you that could testify to this personally. That before you knew God, you were living a life of quiet desperation. And after you, you came to know Christ, you knew you didn't know desperation anymore. It wasn't a regular part of your life. You didn't have the anxiety, the fear that was there before. So, practically speaking then, Peace works itself out in a, what we call a, a satiriological or saving, there's a saving peace. The repentance of the non-believer from and forgiveness for 
their rebellion against God. So we are at peace with God when we repent of our sins and ask Christ into our life. There's no, no longer the condition of hostility between us and God. We have reconciled. That's a satirological peace that's um, already and not yet. And then there's a sanctifying peace. The repentance of the believer, uh, believer's related sin through conviction of the Holy Spirit. So you can be a believer and you can have some kind of ongoing sin in your life that's unreconciled unless you're perfect. So, I mean, I, I, I guess I should defer there. There could be somebody here like that. But, but the truth of the matter is that even though we come to faith in Christ, we are still working out our salvation through fear and trembling and that there are still sin-oriented kinds of things in our life and that over time the Holy Spirit reveals certain kinds of sins and he wants us to deal with it and we may not want to deal with it. And so because we don't deal with it, his Holy Spirit troubles us. He convicts us. And we don't experience peace. And not only that, but that sin then causes alienation or uh, uh, an adversarial kind of thing between us and other people. We hold a grudge. We have anger. And we're supposed to let it go. But we can't. We won't. And so there isn't peace in our life like we should have. Because we will not resolve that sin as a believer. So the, the Holy Spirit is faithful. And he just continues to harangue us in a good way. So you all know what I'm talking about there, right, Bonnie? Yes. Oh. <laughs> yeah, there could be besetting sins, yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah. And not only that, I mean, I'm, I'm on a rabbit trail here, but I could even tell you this, that there are some people that I, I think the fall is so pervasive that sometimes parents pass on to their children sins that were uh, a part of their life. And so, you know, so that some people call that generational sin. Um, and so your child may be, be born predisposed to a certain kind of addiction. Or, and you've all heard this, he's just like his father. He does the same exact, you know, like, what was it? And you know what? And, and the father may never have been around. But that child still carries with them that kind, that part of the DNA. And so we need God then to help us. If we want peace, if peace is important to us, then we have to reconcile those things in our life. So the soteriological peace, for example, would be, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So because we've been justified, we now have peace with God. Because we repented of our sins, there now is peace with God. And this is what the angels was talking about. This is what the angel was talking about primarily and foremostly here. C.S. Lewis said, human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. So the evil, the pervasive suffering that is a part of 
human history, so much of it is about people pursuing other things other than God to make them happy. And implied in that word happy is peace, contentment, fulfillment. Sanctifying peace, then, is different. And we Christians oftentimes hear teaching again and again and again about how we need to change our life, how we can improve, how uh, we can uh, overcome certain things in our life, and we just struggle with that. We want just enough of God so that we are insured of our salvation, but not enough of God that he forces us to change certain things about our life that we really want to keep and hang on to. So the one who learns and learns and doesn't practice is like the one who plows and plows and plows and never plants. You can learn and learn and learn, but if you don't take what you've learned and put it into practice, then you'll never benefit from what it is that you've learned. Psalm 11, 12 through 13 says, If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery darts. So if the Christian doesn't repent, God sends the Holy Spirit and sometimes acute conviction about sin in our lives. And if not just that, then consequences from that because we won't deal, and so we can't have the peace that we want because we won't deal with the sin in our lives. It would sanctify us and bring us, bring to us the peace that we desire. Some of us don't have peace as believers because we just can't let certain things go. Whatever they are, the list could be myriad. It could be things that were done to us when we were young, it could be, but they all lie in the past. Someone once said, don't stumble over something behind you. And there are a lot of Christians who never move forward in their life because they are constantly stumbling over something that's behind them. And the peace that they desire, that they want, that they're hungry for is elusive. And many of them, after a while, begin to believe that there's certain portions of the Christian faith that are just irrelevant. Someone else said, people swear they're fighting demons when the whole time they're fighting the consequences of their choices. And so those consequences are painful and they rob us of our peace. Augustine said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless. So for the unbeliever, their heart is restless because they've never figured out that God has made them for himself. And they will be restless until they find their rest in him. Many believers do not experience the kind of peace that could be theirs because they have not resolved certain things in their life that the Holy Spirit is all too good at showing them about and their heart is restless. And so because they don't 
repent of that sin, then they don't experience the peace they could have. And so our hearts are, are restless until they find their rest in him. This is a great gift that was promised to us 2,000 years ago through the birth of Jesus Christ. The gift of peace in ourselves, between us and God, between each other and within the created order. And not only are we blessed when we find that condition, but even people at a local Shoe Shoes restaurant find that they want the very same peace that we found. So there are all kinds of applications to this very, very important word, peace. Peace.